name. Father God, as we come before you this morning, we are a blessed people, truly blessed to have your word here so readily available. Oh God, thank you. Thank you for the preservation. Thank you for John penning this letter. And God, thank you that 2,000 years later, it still works its way into the hearts and the minds of the people of God. Oh God, that your church would be built up, that Christ as head would be glorified, and that we would go from this place to shine your light to the world around us. Bless us now. Guard our hearts and minds. Oh God, please guard my lips. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Thank you. In the game of football, and I'll, Jared, I mean American football, just uh, to be clear, uh, you'll find no more thankless position than that of the offensive line. These are men larger and heavier than refrigerators that protect quarterbacks and running backs. Rarely do they score a touchdown. Seldom are they allowed to catch a pass. If they do their job well, someone else gets the yards completes the pass, or scores the touchdown. You will not hear their name on television or over a PA system unless they've screwed up. If they were called for a penalty that stalled the drive, then their name is broadcast loud and clear for everyone to hear, and the television analysts will show replay after replay of their infraction, highlighting how the team just couldn't afford to have such a penalty at such a time as that. So these guys toil largely unheralded. Names unknown. Nobody trading for their rookie card. They suffer bodily abuse. They have the shortest tenure of any positioned player in the NFL. Their knees are shot usually after 10 years. Though they don't score, though they don't throw, though they don't run with or catch the ball, no team can win without a dominant offensive line. Why do they toil? Why do they suffer in obscurity? They do it to win. They do it so that their team will win. Yeah, there's satisfaction if they throw a good block, but if they throw a good block and the team loses, that's all a disappointment. Now, if nobody else does, there's at least one person on the team that recognizes their efforts and their value, and that's the quarterback. He loves those guys. His life, his life, no kidding, his life and his career depend on those guys. That 1,500-pound wall of muscle keeping the Mongol hordes off his back and out of his face. Last week, we took a look at what a cancer pride can be in a church as embodied in the person of Diotrephes, a guy who wanted to put himself first. Today, we're going to see the glory of what can happen in a church with a guy nobody knows about just because he's doing his job and he's living the life that Christ has called him to. It's important for us to understand that when Christ is the head of any church, there is no place for the man or woman who wants to put himself or herself first. 
This week, as John closes his letter, he points to the desperate need within the church for the saints to live a life so delighting in Christ, so delighting in the truth, so striving together for the win that we delight to be and to do whatever our Savior asks. Our desire is for the Savior to get the credit. John begins this section here with what might sound like an odd command to our overly independent American ears. To contrast the darkness of Diotrephes, John exhorts Gaius here at the end of this epistle in verse 11 to imitate not the evil, but the good. Now, in America today, we have a real reticence to imitate anybody. Back in the day, imitation was the sincerest form of flattery, but now it's spurned in our culture. You're being fake. If you're imitating somebody, you're playing a role. We want to be our own man. You be you. I'll imitate nobody, good or evil. I will be my own person. But the truth is, is that we're all imitators. Every one of us. There is nothing more alike than those who are trying to be countercultural. Gangbangers. They all look the same. The goths. They all look the same. If you flip back through my yearbook, you look at hairstyles and you go, they all look the same. Big hair on the girls, the dudes had it all parted in the middle and kind of feathered. You go, whoa, you just kind of hope that doesn't come back. <laughs> but we do that. I mean, we imitate that. Children imitate their parents. They do that. Kids will imitate somebody on TV or in the movies. And God gets this. This is why Paul exhorted the Corinthians at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33. He says, Bad company corrupts good character. You're going to be like them. You hang with them, you're going to be like them. This is why Paul earlier in the same letter said, follow me as I follow Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. That is an audacious thing. God knows we are going to be imitators. The word here for imitate both imitate the evil and imitate the good, is mimeomai. Mimeomai. From which we get mimic and mimeograph. Mimeograph. And for the older people, they imagine dirty purples and the smell of what those pages smell like coming off of a mimeograph. Your parents will tell you what that is later. But the word mimeomai is replete within the New Testament for begging the church to follow after those who are exemplifying Christ. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7, the writer of Hebrews says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. That implies you're examining the leaders and going, what's good there? Imitate their faith. To the church at Thessalonica in his second letter, chapter 3, verses 7 through 9, Paul writes to them, 
He says, you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you. He's exhorting them, hey, work, work, just like we did. Okay, imitate what we were doing. He goes on, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. Be like me. Do what I'm doing. This has been normal and good through all of human existence. It's called mentoring. Be like me. The son should emulate the father in what he's doing. The daughter should emulate the mother. The apprentice should emulate the master. A surgeon is not going to learn how to cut somebody open on Google. Okay, well, how do I do that? No, man, he's going to stand right next to the master and watch him do many, 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 many operations and do his work on cadavers. For those of you who are involved in flight, it's a demo do. The instructor pilot is going to demonstrate to the student and then the student is going to try and emulate the master. For those of you who like movies, it is Yoda and Luke. So this is John encouraging Gaius to imitate the good, and he does it with a study in contrasts. Do not imitate the evil, but imitate the good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. So who are the doers of the good? Well, before we kind of get into there, what does it mean to do good? What is good? Good is that which flows out from God. Even Jesus Christ, when he was confronted by the rich young ruler, he said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus' response to him was, why do you call me good? There is none who is good except the Father only. Good is inherent in God. It is, it is his nature. Good flows in everything that he does. All that God does is good. As such, whatever he commands and whatever he directs for his people is good. His commands to us are good. They emanate from who he is. Something cannot be good if it is in conflict with what God's word says. It can't. This is the very whisper of Satan. Now, as, as biblical Christians, I hope we understand that even an unsaved person can do good and accomplish good. Is that heresy? No. That is because every person is created in the image of God. Everybody, every human being has the imago dei in them, the image of God, the immaterialness of man. But it's broken. It's broken. But still, it's there. 
And sometimes it shows up in just magnificent and beautiful good, even though they don't know God as Savior. As we live and move and have our beings out in the world, we have to be a discerning people. We look at thoughts, words, and deeds, and we compare them to what is good. How do I know what is good? And as I said, if it is in conflict with this, it cannot be good. So what is the good that I should do? What is this good that I should imitate? We have to remember that this letter is written to a church. So this whole letter is in the context of a church setting. We are a people who are being transformed by God in his word. Our minds are being renewed day by day. Be, and he commands us to be renewed, be transformed in our minds by being renewed in our minds in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, so that we can determine the pleasing will of God. How do I determine what is good? By letting God change me into the man or woman that he would have me to be through the power of the Holy Spirit and the truth of his word. And as he has given us in his word, I look to those who are walking the walk. What do they look like? Okay, that's irrelevant. You know, River, River's got his bow tie on. Go River. Okay, you don't, you don't have to wear a bow tie to walk the walk. You don't have to wear your hair a certain way. You don't have to preach a certain way that way. Um, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to study the word this way so that I can be like this guy. Well, okay, being like that guy may not be a great thing, but maybe that study method is good. What am I doing this for? got to understand that our relationship with Christ in the church and out in the world is going to betray us. Not that Christ is going to betray us, but it's going to expose who we are. Am I really walking with Christ? It is going to be manifest. The apostles, when they were arrested, were indicted as having been with Christ. They could tell they had been with Christ because of their conduct and their behavior. This morning in our study, our very fast study of 2 Corinthians We talked about a section in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, where we are described as the aroma of Christ. And the idea is of a parade after a battle. And in the parade after the battle, they would be carrying censers. And so for the victors, for those who are going, yeah, sweet, the conquering heroes, it's great. The smell of that fragrance is victory. At the end of the line are the prisoners who are smelling the exact same thing and for them, they know what their lot is. They are condemned. That very same smell is the smell of death. To the world, for those who are walking with Christ, your life in Christ is going to be a beautiful fragrance. I want to be like that. I want more of that on me. But to those who are perishing, they're going, dude, I want nothing to do with you. You reek. 
that relationship with Christ hopefully will move us to live like Christ. We will imitate the good that we find in His Word. And if we do so, it can't not be noticed. Now, note John's interesting indictment of the doers of evil. The doers of evil have not seen God. Whoever does good is from God. And the whole idea of doing good is a constant repetition. It's not that they never sin. For those who are doing evil, again, it is, a, it is an, a lifestyle. Their way of life tends toward the evil. They have not seen God. This comes right on the heels of Diotrephes. So he is exemplifying to Gaius evil. John's implication is that Diotrephes, though he is in the church, has not seen God. John expands on this in his first letter in 1 John. He says, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. What did did Diotrephes do? Diotrephes going, hey, we don't want those missionaries, man. Just keep going. Go down to the next church. We don't want you here. And you want them in here? Why don't you go with them? Okay, get out of here. We're not supporting them. Get. Where's the love for the brotherhood? Where is the love for those who are putting their lives out uh, on the mission field? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. 1 John 3.10. 1 John 4.20 says, Whoever loves God must also love his brother. I mean... It's a hand-in-hand kind of thing. So this is a life characterized. It's not a lapse. Because, you know, God forbid all of us should have to hold, live up to absolute holiness in this life. We can't. John also says, if we say that we are without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So this is within the church. We understand that sinners are going to act like sinners. Those who do not know Christ, that's how they're going to live. But he calls us, God calls us to examine one another, be like one another, encourage one another. Judgment must begin within the church. Peter writes in his first letter, chapter 4, verse 17. And as Royal and I were talking uh, between, between Sunday school and worship, Jesus said, you will know them by their fruit. You look at their lifestyle. Look at their lifestyle. How are they living? That is who I want to imitate. If they have not seen God, their life is going to be exemplified by something being amiss, as it was with Diotrephes. So you go, great. Well, who should I follow? Um, I would warn you, don't cling to the rock star. Don't cling too tightly to the rock star. And I don't mean rock star literally. There are men and women who 
have done great things for the cause of Christ. And they have attained great fame and great stature amongst the Christian realm. And sometimes they fall. And they fall hard. And that just shakes the church. Shatters faith. People walk away going, what was I thinking? How could I have been so deceived? Don't cling too tightly to personalities and the famous people. At the same time, we would be fools to ignore the great teaching of the giants past and present. I would encourage you to dig into John Calvin. Unbelievable stuff. Calvin's Institute's really big, but really good stuff on our relationship with the living God. Charles Spurgeon, holy cow. Jonathan Edwards from days gone by. John Owen, present day, R.C. Sproul. Great stuff. John Piper, John MacArthur, Francis Schaeffer. Great teachers. Perfect? No. Elizabeth Elliot. Elizabeth George. Nancy Lee DeMoss Wolgamuth. I mean, these are, these are people, oh, I want to read their stuff, but you know what? They're not perfect. And some of them are dead, so their race is complete and the things haven't been dug up on them. Some of them may fall. That doesn't deny the truth of their teaching and the health that it can bring to the church by following them as they have followed Christ. So I have to heed Paul's admonition to me in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. I have to examine these lives. You know, and it's not John Piper I'm following. It's his teaching. It's not Nancy Lee DeMoss that I'm following. It's her teaching. Really, the one I'm trying to follow is Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter 2, verses 20, verse 21, he says, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Christ is our ultimate example. And if Christ is our ultimate example, this is what I have to follow. This is where I must bask. Christ is the word made flesh. If I want to be like Christ, I must saturate myself with him. There should be nothing. I'll, I'll qualify. There should almost be nothing that I know better than the word of God. For him, there should be nothing that he knows better than the word of God. For a surgeon, I go, okay, he probably knows his surgery better, the human anatomy better. But second should be the word of God. Within the body of Christ, we should know God's word. God's word should tumble off our lips when we speak to one another. 
We should encourage one another with the word of God. When we're in conversation with other people, the word of God should come out of our mouths. We may not be citing chapter and verse, but the truth that this world desperately needs to hear needs to be coming out of us like the exhalation of our breath. If I say I love God, but I do not love his word, I am a liar and the truth is not in me. That is not scriptural. That is principally true. I cannot say that I love God and not love his word. Jesus is the word. (laughs) So John goes, okay, here's an example. Verse 12. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony and you know that our testimony is true. And you go, tell us about him. What's going on with Demetrius? And you go flip through Acts and you go in there and you go, okay, let me do a word search for Demetrius. Well, there was a Demetrius in Acts, but he was hostile to the church. So it's probably not that guy, probably a different Demetrius here. But who is this guy? You know, we've never heard of him. He's one of those offensive linemen inducted into the Hall of Fame, and nobody knows. But the quarterback has welded his name in Scripture for all of eternity for us. Demetrius has an obvious testimony. You can smell him. He is the aroma, the fragrance of Christ. He has a good testimony from everyone. And from the truth. When you compare his life to the truth, you go, you know, it's not running like this. You go, oh, it's beautiful. That's how he lives his life. And John goes, after me. I'm going to throw my, I'll throw my name in with that. Demetrius, man, that's a guy to follow. That's a guy to imitate. So you go, who's the most important person in the church? Jesus, in Matthew chapter 11, said that there was none greater born of woman than John the Baptist. None greater born of a woman than John the Baptist. You know. But then he goes on to say, but greater still is the one who is the least in the kingdom of heaven. Down here. A little bit later in Matthew, we get the story that Amira read. What a great story. And you love seeing the, the top disciples, Peter, James, and John. They're, they're like always going, oh, we're sorry. Yeah, that was really bad. Their mom goes, hey, I want James and John to sit on your right hand and on your left in the kingdom. And, and Jesus very graciously says, hey, that's not mine to give. Well, the disciples catch wind of this going, hey. And as brothers would do, they're like, oh, what are you doing? And, you know, they start getting into each other's face about, what do you, you know, come on, man. Really, this is absurd. And Jesus goes, whoa, hey. Time out. 
You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great, you must be the servant. Whoever would be first, you must be the slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. He's laid it out for us. This isn't NASCAR. We're not bumping and shucking and jiving trying to get to the front. I want to be a snowplow. I want to push everybody else to the front. That was Paul's broken heart in Romans 9 through 11 where the Jews have forsaken Christ. They rejected Christ. And Paul's going, oh, it's breaking his heart. He wants to push them all. Come on. Turn to him as your savior. So how do I do this? Let me encourage you to recognize your smallness before Christ. Christ is big. We are small. I'm never going to be the quarterback. That's not who God created me to be. There's only one quarterback. And he's only given me so many talents. But he calls me to use these talents for his glory. Right now, in this place that he has set me up. In my home. In my community. And we, when those missionaries come trucking down the street, one of them might stop and we go, hey, we really... We want to help support that ministry. And pretty soon we're intimate with a guy down in Antofagasta, Chile. Who would know that? I need to rejoice when the team wins. I rejoice when saints succeed. That's, what, that's the start of this letter. You know, I, verse 3, I rejoice greatly when the brothers came to me and testified of your truth as indeed you are walking in the truth. John's like going, oh, yes, fantastic. Titus, encouraging Paul from the Corinthian church we studied in Sunday school this morning. We rejoice. Oh, that's a thrill. John chapter 2, verse 4, one page over. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth. Oh. And at the same time, we weep when those in our church are injured physically or spiritually. And we come alongside of them and help pick up the load to get them back on their feet. So I recognize my smallness before God and that we are empowered by God to do what he would have us do here in the church. It's important for us also to understand that in our smallness, we're going to suffer. We're going to get hammered. And it's going to be hard, just like with Paul. Expect the world to hate you because they hated Jesus first. Jesus told his disciples that very thing in John 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Peter also noted, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. God forbid that the suffering comes through people like Diotrephes within the church. We know it's going to come from without John finishes up verse 13. Man, I got, I got a lot to share with you. That's what he says. I got a lot to share, but you know, let's just hold off. Let's wait until we get together so I can talk to you. 
as I concluded my sermon John in 2 John, he says exactly the same thing. I'd rather meet with you face to face. Let's understand how important the intimate relationship of being together is in the church. I don't want to communicate with you just by text. That's a good thing. It's a great technology. But there's got to be more. I want to talk to you. I want to be with you. I want to hear your life. I want to be in your life. The two smallest books in the Bible, six sermons, and we've just barely waded the shallows of the glories of the truth in these two little letters. They are calls for us to live the truth because of our relationship with and to the truth in a world that loathes every morsel and molecule of the truth. Let me encourage you to imitate those who are following Christ. Brothers and sisters, imitate those who are following Christ. If you have never been in a discipling relationship, or you don't even know what that is, or if it's been a while, please talk to me or Jeremy. Or if you go, you see somebody who's living the Christian life, you go, oh, I want to be like that. Help me. I don't even know how to do that. Talk to somebody. Brothers and sisters, may the God who is able to do abundantly beyond all we can ask or imagine continue to prepare us to be a spotless bride for our glorious God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May the peace and joy of Christ fill and overwhelm us all. Let's pray. Oh God, such a charge that you give to us. But a blessing, a blessing that you have not left us. We're not, we're not flying solo here. You're not pointing me to an airplane and say, go fly it. You will never leave us nor forsake us. Father, thank you that you have grafted each one into the church for the building up of the church, for the glory that that through all of this, that thanksgiving would overflow to your glory and praise. God, we thank you for that. As we go from this place, we are going to get hit in the face. We know it with the word, with the world, sorry, with the world and the problems and difficulties of the world. Oh God, that we would not be beset. Help us to encourage and exhort one another to fix our eyes upon Jesus. Oh God, we know that one day the race will be complete and these light and momentary afflictions will prepare for us a weight of glory that we cannot even begin to fathom now. God, give us strength to endure. Give us strength to take the next breath. For your pleasure and for your glory, we beg in Jesus' name. Amen.